pair of hikers from Rhode Island have been rescued after getting stuck in treacherous terrain on Mount Washington. At least one hiker expressed they were feeling symptoms of hypothermia. Officials tell us the hikers were brought to safety around 10 p.m. And thankfully, there were no injuries. This was no drill, but a real-life emergency deep in the White Mountains. Broadcasting from the Woodpecker Studio in the great state of New Hampshire, welcome to Episode 1 of the Sounds Like a Search and Rescue podcast, where we discuss all things related to hiking and search and rescue in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. This week, we're highlighting one of the most popular areas in the Whites, the Franconia Ridge. Ever wanted to hike the ridge? We will break it down for you. In addition to highlighting Franconia, we'll cover an introduction to the podcast crew. We'll talk about some well-known search and rescue mishaps on and around Franconia. We'll do a segment on what it's like to be on a search and rescue team. And we'll wrap the show up with a discussion on bear safety when visiting outhouses in the backcountry. Don't worry, we'll explain. I'm Mike. And I'm Stomp. Let's get started. First episode... We're excited to get started. The show will focus on two main areas, highlighting all the amazing hiking in the whites and highlighting the risks and dangers that do happen while experiencing the mountains. Uh, before we get get into this, I just wanted to check with you to see what you have going on for an adult beverage. Anything good? Pinot Grigio. A little tart, nice. a little so light. In, in celebration tonight, I've got a... IPA from Northwoods Brewing Company called Trapper's Pack. You ever heard of them? No. Good stuff? Yeah, it's pretty good. It's well, pretty good. I will the... be hydrating with this, and I will also be hydrating with a little bit of water. Nice. So, Yeah, when the Pinot's gone, um, I have some moat in the uh, nice. fridge. Some Czech Pilsner. <laughs> Very nice. Uh, getting ready. I'm going out tomorrow. Going hiking. Heading north. Nice. Where are you going? I'm going to go to Garfield. Uh, we are meeting, I guess, I, I don't really, I've never done Dar- Garfield in the winter, but we are going to be parking at, I think it's Trudeau Road and uh, Route 3, and then road walking up. Hmm. So I just mapped it out. It's about 12 and a half miles. It's going to be a yeah. long day. Well, I was just going to say, in the winter, it's long A-H with the addition yeah. of that yeah. road. So up. I'm looking forward to it, though. I've been gonna, I haven't gone out in like two weeks, so... Should be fun. I'm going with one friend. He hasn't gone out winter hiking yet this year, so we'll have to get get the snowshoes out and break trail. I'm guessing. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Some more snow coming too. So winter's yeah. finally here. Yes, it is. But uh, yeah, well, I'm looking forward to having some fun, uh, passing on the knowledge in New Hampshire and the Whites. Um, talk about popular areas that you and I have hiked, and talk about some uh, maybe lesser known areas and give some insights into what it's like to be on the ground with search and rescue in New Hampshire. Yeah. Yeah. So stomp just for the audience's benefit. So stomp is on search and rescue. I am not, you know, the goal for this podcast is to give people information about the white mountains, talk about a variety of things around hiking culture and search and rescue. So uh, we're going to talk about, Tonight, uh, Franconia Ridge, but we will also cover a lot of details in future episodes around peak bagging. We'll talk about list hiking. We're going to open with a series, a basic series about the 4,000 footer list. We'll talk about the 52 with a view, the 100 highest, the 500 highest. We'll cover redlining. We'll talk about the terrifying 25 redlining. 
And we're really hoping that people that listen to the show will be a mix of new hikers learning about the area and experienced hikers who may be interested in learning about gear, getting some more insight on what goes on behind the scenes in search and rescue, uh, and probably learn about some lesser known areas. You know, we're not expert hikers, I don't think, but we've been in enough places where, you know, we could probably give a few tips of, of areas that people haven't been to. So uh, in addition to that, we will talk about some other cool stuff, campsite information. We will talk about uh, some secret cabins that we know of. And we'll also throw out some info about unsolved crimes and, and true crime. That's sort of my, my little side hobby that I have. Yeah, uh, sounds great. Today's episode is going to be broken down into three topics. First, a hiking discussion of Franconia Ridge, which is one of the most popular and beautiful hikes in the White Mountains for sure. Second, a discussion about some well-known search and rescue events in and around Franconia Ridge from the past 10 to 20 years. And finally, a discussion about some recent search and rescue calls that have occurred in, in the last month or so. Before our first topic, we do want to give a little introduction about our backgrounds and what qualifies to even talk about this stuff. Mike, why don't you start off and give us an intro? Great, Stomp. So, um, like I said before, I'm, I don't consider myself to be an expert hiker, but I've been doing this for long enough that I've been around the whites that I, I think I can give some insight. Uh, so, just to give some background, I am a Massachusetts resident. I am lucky enough to have a family home that my in-laws own in Maine near uh, the Freiburg area. It gets me pretty close to the whites. Uh, I've been hiking a lot probably for the last eight years or so. I was a runner for a long time, got into triathlon, cycling, and uh, as I got a little bit older, I found that I was getting chronically injured, basically um, Achilles tendonitis issues, IT band, um, all kinds of problems. So you, you can relate, Stomp, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we're both a little older now, so we're, we're, we're still feeling those injuries. But I think in my probably late 30s, early 40s, I just... I, I couldn't keep going at the pace I was going with running, and I had been doing a little bit of hiking with the kids and getting up into some waterfall hikes. But I think about eight years ago, I did my first solo hike on Glen Boulder, went up up Glen Boulder, hiked Mount Washington on a bluebird perfect day in the summer, and I was completely hooked since that day. I've been going for eight years. I've completed almost all of the 4,000 footers. I've got 47 of the 48 4,000 footers done. Um, completed almost all the 52 with the views. I've got 49 out of 52 done there, and I've got uh, the terrifying 25. I've got 22 of the 25 done there, and probably about 40% of the whites red line. So um, definitely turned into a big hiking nerd. I would say that, you know, for me, I'm mostly a peak bagger. I uh, do a little bit of backpacking, and I'm definitely starting to think about redlining. I've hiked in addition to the whites, I've hiked in a lot of different places. I've hiked out west in uh, Arizona, Grand Canyon. I've hiked in Oregon, Washington State. Uh, I've gone to Iceland. I've hiked Florida. I don't recommend Florida. That's the worst place in the world to hike. It's just smelly and no views. So, um, But that's it. And then I would say my, my personal favorite hike I would say is uh, probably the bald face loop, which we'll talk about in a future episode. And I guess two other things just to be aware of uh, about me is that I, in addition to the hiking, one of the things that I've been doing for the last two years is um, 
I run a group. It's a social media group on Facebook called Sounds Like a Search and Rescue Call is about to happen. And in that group, what we do is track search and rescue calls. So uh, the last couple of years, I've been really interested in risk and um, search and rescue incidents that have gone on in the white. So we monitor those, track the data that comes through in, in media posts. And uh, it, it gives us a lot of insights into uh, strategies that you can use to remain safe while hiking. So overall, you know, there's around 120 incidents per year that happen, which is not a lot of incidents when you consider how many people are out hiking. But uh, it's enough that, you know, we, we do see some serious issues that come up and we'll cover them in this podcast. But uh, you know, it's something I'm passionate about and really interested in. Me and Stomp have been friends for a long time, and he's on search and rescue. So we decided we were just going to get this podcast going to talk about it. So Stomp, that's that's my my resume, my background. You want to talk a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. Uh, did you mention how we met? I didn't. I didn't. Uh, you want to break that down? <laughs> Smelly car ride. That's how we met. But you, you can break down the details. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, I'm in my 50s now. I've been hiking since uh, I was 13. My lovely f- parents dragged me kicking and screaming up Mount Chikora when I was 13. And at the time, all I wanted to do was uh, collect rocks. I was in, huge into rocks and minerals and things like that. So, yeah, it was a miserable hike. And after that, I probably didn't hike for many years. Um, do you, what, uh, what, what direction did they take you up, Chikora? It was Piper. Piper, okay. Yeah, it was Piper. And you, and you were crying <laughs> over Piper? Well... I was a fat little kid and I just wanted to... That's not a good start to your hiking career. (laughs) I just wanted to stay at home, play video games and collect rocks. So... I get it. And by the way, I did collect a lot of rocks on that hike and uh, my stepdad was gracious enough to carry them for me in his pack. So I made sure I collected a a lot. So, yeah, (laughs) it took took me many years to get back into it. I think I, I got back into hiking when I was in my 20s. And now it's it's virtually a, a every other day, every day type of thing. I live in Thornton, New Hampshire, which is in the arms of the most beautiful little loop here, the Welch Dickey Loop. My wife and I moved up about five year, five six years ago from Massachusetts. And yeah, I mean, just to have these mountains right in the backyard is a blessing. You never get tired of it. I mean, I, I commute over to. Uh, North Haverhill every day. I work with the elderly uh, as a physical therapist. Um, that's my full-time job. I also part-time LNA work, so I'm really just hands-on with people. And that sort of ties into why I got into search and rescue. I just felt like as I was getting older, just wanted to find some way to give back to the community. And when my wife and I moved up here, I think it was 2016, I started seeing these clippings in the newspapers and on WMUR, um, you know, just local TV of this this team, like rescuing, plucking these people out of the hills. And it just absolutely fascinated me and um, prompted me to do some digging. And I discovered Pemi Search and Rescue, which is out of uh, Franconia. At the level that I'm involved with the group now, it's it's pretty intensive. It, there's always something going on. There are, There are always calls happening. So... And a lot of preparation for just the members and the team throughout the year, getting ready for winter and everything else. And then as far as um, sort of standard hiking in the white, so 4,000 footers, you've done those? Yeah, I did. the. Well, that's the funny thing. I mean, we were living in Mass, my wife and I, and she got the bug. We, I, I dragged her up Glen Boulder, which is on the eastern side of Mount Washington, one day. And I said, hey, don't worry about it. It's tiny. It's a, it's about a mile up to this huge boulder. It's wicked cool. A mile uh, up at 2,000 feet. 
<laughs> so it, it ended up being very challenging for both of us. I hadn't been hiking at the time uh, very often, and uh, it was one of her first hikes, and she got the bug. But long story short, from that point, she she finished the 48, 4,000 footers, and I was maybe, I don't know, 13 in or something at the time when she got the bug to finish the list. So um, two years later, we both finished the list together, and that was really fantastic. And from there, uh, you know, we did some repeats and stuff. We're not we're not so much into the lists and things like that, but there is one list that I am addicted to, and it's the 500 highest list. And it's, uh, you know, maybe 80% bushwhacks and just these smaller peaks that you would never think of doing. And and now that the trails are getting busier, it's been really nice. So we, well, I'm sure we're, you can be our resident expert on that one because I'm not I'm not doing that. The bushwhacks <laughs> are a little bit too much. So, yeah. <laughs> um, so what what's your favorite hike? Yeah, well, I hate to say this. Put you on the spot here. Yeah, I know you're you're dragging me into this kicking and screaming. I, I don't want to give away all my secret spots. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. here it is. It's the captain. Guess I would say that. Yeah. I knew you were going to say that. So we'll we'll do an episode <laughs> on the captain at a later date. But if you do a little bit of research, the captain just quickly is a it's a peak right below. It's between Mount Carrigan and the Hancocks, and it's a it's a bushwhack only, very difficult peak to get to, and it's sort of a a rite of passage for anybody that's a crazy bushwhacker in the whites to to get out to the captain. So it's it's an impressive feat, and Stomp is probably too humble to brag himself, but he he went out there and did a solo trip, which is which is insanity. But we'll we'll talk in more detail about that in the future. To backtrack about how we met, we are both veterans of the mount washington road race and it's back in my running days yeah you know honestly this is way back in what 2008 or 2007 somewhere around there i think so yeah yeah so i've, I've personally i've done the race four times mike you've done it what ten thousand times uh i think six or seven i've got i'm in this year <laughs> so I'm, I'm, i haven't trained yet but i'm i'm in so it's i think this will be seven are you going to wear two surgical masks or three I'm hoping that we'll be at the point where we're not going to need surgical masks. So it's it's in June, so I'm keeping my fingers crossed, but uh, we'll see. I'm I don't curious. think I'm going to be able to wear a mask running up that hill. Yeah. Well, the plan is they're going to – they're splitting the genders up, so they're doing it across two days. So they'll, they're going to have the, the women go on Saturday, the men go on Sunday, and then I think they're going to stagger the start times by five minutes so that everyone will be spread out. So That's awesome. I'm really excited for you. So, yeah, that's how we met, uh, and here we are. Yeah, yeah. I think if I remember correctly, it was the old message board on the, the Mount Washington road race. I was looking for a ride, and I met you and your lovely wife through that, and uh, mm -hmm. the rest is history. Yep. Yeah, it's awesome. Great. So, uh, Stomp, we're going to get into our first topic here, which is Franconia Ridge. Um, the reason we picked this is because it's one of the most popular hikes in the Whites. Uh, basically, if you look at the two most popular, I would say Franconia Ridge and then Mount Washington. So we wanted to focus on the ridge right now uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, primarily, the main reason is, is that it is a big hotspot for search and rescue. And there's been some recent um, activity there that Stomp has been involved with. So we'll, we'll break down some of that info later. But just to start off with, for people that are not familiar with hiking in the Whites or haven't done Franconia Ridge, I want to start off with some quick facts. So it is a, it's about a nine mile loop hike. So there's a sort of a standard route that you would travel it by and we'll, we'll, get, we'll give a little bit more detail on that shortly. Anytime we're talking about trails or hiking in the whites, generally we'll reference the White Mountain Guide, which is a book that basically has all of the trail descriptions and all of the associated maps of the White Mountains. 
this hike is listed as a strenuous hike in the White Mountain Guide. Franconia Ridge itself is a mile and a half trail that goes across uh, the ridge and goes over three peaks, Little Haystack, Mount Lincoln, and Lafayette. And it's considered to be one of the most scenic hikes in, in the world. I kind of cringe sometimes, Stomp, when I see, you know, I'll see these articles about like the, the top 10 hikes in the world and Franconia usually will will be on those lists. Yeah, absolutely. It, I mean, just the position of it between all these different states and even Canada, it's just very, very popular destination. Yeah, yeah. And it is, it's part of the Appalachian Trail as well. So I would assume that, you know, there's a couple of big milestones for through hikers. I haven't done the Appalachian Trail, but for through hikers, getting to Franconia Ridge is a, uh, is a pretty iconic moment for them. And typically, you know, in the summertime, you'll see a fair amount of through hikers coming, coming across the ridge. Uh, it's fully exposed. It's above tree line. Like I said, it's about a mile and a half long. And it is, when you hit this on a beautiful day, it is unbelievable, the views. Uh, but it's crowded. It, it does get crowded up there, Stomp. Uh, have you, have, you've been up there a number of times. Can you describe a little bit about the, the elements of the, the crowds that you'll see up there? These days, you have to plan your um, your days. Most days, there are a couple parking lots that you can access on Route 93 North. The primary parking lot is maybe holds a couple hundred cars. That thing gets packed by 7, 8 o'clock in the morning, and now people are being diverted to about a mile up the road to Cannon Tram, which has another series of parking lots, and they're just, you know, they're having to use busing and everything. So there are days on the weekends that you can have a conga line of people ascending and descending and crossing over that traverse so it can be very yeah. crowded yeah and i was up there i was up there with my daughter i think i don't know if it was last summer or the summer before and i tend to go early because I, I like to avoid the crowd and other crowds we got up to little haystack we were heading over to lincoln and uh, there was nobody there it was just me and my daughter and it was a beautiful day we, but we were up there early i think we were on the ridge around eight o'clock saw a couple of trail runners but we did see a uh, a forest ranger coming by and I, you know, we stopped and, and chatted with her. And I think it was, a, we were hiking on a Sunday and I asked her, I was like, you know, what, what do you expect for crowds? And she said that they actually counted the crowds the day before. And she said, so this is a Saturday in June, probably, I think it was late June. And she said that they had 800 people come across the ridge on that Saturday. So they probably figured the same numbers on a Sunday. So you think you're talking anywhere between 1500 to 2000 people coming across the ridge on a, on a weekend day in the summer. Along with the crowds, one other, you know, the other thing that is noteworthy of uh, of the ridge is that it is in close proximity to an AMC hut. So right below Mount Lafayette, there is a uh, AMC hut that is full service. It's called Greenleaf Hut. It's probably about a three quarters of a mile or a mile down below the the peak. Guests can stay there overnight. Gets big crowds. Never stayed in an AMC hut, but uh, I do, I do see the crowds there. And uh, day hikers are welcome to go in get water. Uh, purchase a snack, take a rest there. So uh, it definitely gets gets to be a crowd there on the weekend. So it's it's a place where if you can go during the week or you can go early, I always recommend that that's the, from a timing perspective, that is what you want to do. Again, the views up there are, are very impressive. The Ridgeline offers views out to the Kinsmans, Mount Cannon to the west, and it's got stunning views of the Pemi Wilderness to the east. On a clear day, uh, you can easily see the presidential range. You can see the sandwich range. They're all clearly visible, um, along with many of the prominent features in the whites. 
All right. Well, so before we get into talking, you know, about the, the various trails that are involved in hiking Franconia Ridge, just to give people that aren't familiar with the whites a um, kind of lay of the land of the geography, there's going to be a number of terms that we'll be using here. So technically, Franconia Ridge is in what we call Franconia Notch, which is part of a New Hampshire state park system, even though we, you know, most people reference it as the White Mountains. But uh, notches are basically canyons that are carved out by glaciers that have moved through the region. And there's really four major notches that are in the Whites. Um, And going from basically the most westerly notch over to the east, you've got Franconia. And then the next notch over is Crawford Notch. Then you've got Pinkham Notch and Evans Notch. And these are basically um, north to south directionally, and they tend to have ridge lines on either side. And most hikers sort of reference the general area that they're in by these notches. In addition to the notches, we've got different mountain ranges that we we talk about. So uh, the Franconia Range is one of those mountain ranges. You've also got Sandwich Range, the Presidential Range. We've got the uh, Wildcat Mariah Range. So there's a number of different mountain ranges that we'll reference while we're talking about hiking. And then in addition to that, we talked about the hut system. So the Greenleaf Hut near Franconia is one of, I think there's somewhere around 10 or 11 huts that the AMC manages throughout New Hampshire. And you can basically hike the entirety of the Appalachian Trail staying in this hot system if you want. So it's a it's a very impressive area. And um, from a geography perspective, there's, you know, thousands of miles of trails and uh, many, many peaks that you can hike. And I would add that um, to the to the west of Franconia Notch, you have Kinsman Notch as well, tapping into a whole other range that uh, makes up the western side, and that incorporates Mount Musilak. It's a massive area, massive. Yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, Stomp, can you talk a little bit about how um, you access the, the Franconia Ridge hike? Sure. 93 is the, the primary highway that you'll take to get to the main trailhead. There are a few trailhead options to get up to the ridge, and that includes the Greenleaf Trail, which starts essentially at the Cannon Tram parking lot, which would be exit 34B. But there's also the primary lot as well, which is Trailhead Parking, which is south of that. And that connects you to the Falling Waters Trail and the old Bridal Path, which again heads up to Greenleaf Trail and intersects there. So basically, when thinking about Franconia and trying to access this ridge, this beautiful ridge of mountains, um, there are basically three trailheads, five major trails, and one hut, the Greenleaf Hut. We've talked about how um, it does get crowded, so we always recommend that the best time to go is during the week. If you do go during the weekend, I suggest that you get there by 8 o'clock at the latest. So, Stomp, um, you obviously live close by, so you've had the luxury of being on and around this area for, for uh, many times between search and rescue and just hiking in your own hobby or free time. Can you give me, I guess, some some idea of uh, a couple of the hikes that you've done around this area that have stood out to you? Yeah, absolutely. I've done the traditional loop, the nine mile loop, about you know once or twice. There, there was one time that's really special for me. Actually, I was working at Franconia, and right after work, I zipped out. It was spring. It was winter to spring, and I went up Old Bridal to the hut. And then I went up to Lafayette and it was a full moon night and there was still a lot of snow up there, but it was just me. That was it. That was probably 
one of the most special times up on that ridge, just walking across south towards Haystack and then down falling waters under the, the moonlight. And uh, you didn't need a headlamp. You could see the shadows under your feet. Yeah, I haven't done a lot of night hiking, but that's something that I I don't think about it that often. But that's something this summer that I want to try to do is go go across the ridge at night. That would be that would be amazing. Yeah, it's really special. I've been over that area a few times. So my first time hiking it was a solo hike in winter. I did an out and back up Old Bridal, the Green Leaf to uh, Lafayette. That hike was a little bit sketchy because there was just no visibility getting up top. So I broke trail all the way up to the top. I was by myself. There's no other cars in the parking lot when I left. Was going to go across the ridge, but I just, with the visibility, I decided I'd, I'd be better off following my tracks back. Unfortunately, my tracks just got covered up by the wind and I had probably 10, 20 feet visibility. So I was having a hard time finding the the, the cairns that marked the trail, but ultimately I made it back. Definitely lost the trail a bit and it was enough for me to have a healthy level of respect for that area. And we'll talk about like coming down from Lafayette and Greenleaf and some of the risks of of that trail when there's no visibility in a moment. But that that definitely embedded into me that this this place is no joke. I talked about the hike that I've done with my daughter, done a few other trail runs on it. And it's something that I, I really like going there, but I do hesitate uh, whenever anybody suggests it just because of the crowds. And I, I just want to avoid crowds, especially in this COVID environment. So after the show, I'm definitely thinking about getting back there soon enough, though, maybe in the next few weeks. So Stomp, I think I want to do a deep dive on the trails here. So we've got Falling Waters, we've got the Ridge Trail, there's Greenleaf, and there's um, Skookum Chuck. So I want to start with Falling Waters. This trail is famous and notorious. So yeah, can you no just question. give me a description from your perspective of Falling Waters and talk a little bit about what to expect when hiking it? Falling Waters begins at the primary trailhead across from Lafayette Campground in Franconia Notch, three miles in length from what... Yeah, it's got a bunch of like little stream river crossings, right? Was it like three or four river crossings? Oh, absolutely. It meanders along for the first, say, mile or so until you cross a bridge. What happens, you, you eventually come to a primary uh, crossing, which can be treacherous at times um, in the spring. Yeah, I definitely missed that multiple times, or, or at least figuring out that I'm supposed to cross it. Yes, yeah, it can be a challenge for sure. And once you cross this, the trail sort of veers up to the left for approximately another mile, mile and a half of beautiful ledges and waterfalls and cascades. The first waterfall that you come to, I guess, is called Stair Falls. And that's about a 60-foot drop when you come up to it. Is that so, the, That's the big iconic one, right, that everyone takes their picture in front of? No, that's the first one. That's the first that you come to. Oh, it's to. the first one. Uh, from there, there's a steep staircase that banks up, and then you continue along. Um, at 1.3 miles, you eventually come to Cloudland Falls, and that is the 80-foot-high fall that you see, which is just Okay, so that's the stunning. iconic one that I get my picture taken in front of every time. Yeah, okay. absolutely. I call that Falling Waters Waterfall. <laughs> mm-hmm. Just beyond Cloudland Falls, you have a series of small cascades, then it passes under a series of ledges on your right, which we find in Search and Rescue can be a pretty treacherous spot where we get called to quite a bit. Um, just yeah, people just like, so for the audience, um, stops being polite. Like this trail is a place where people tend to fall a lot. So it's easily accessible. You get a lot of 
inexperienced hikers that are like, okay, I can walk right up to this, this trail and get to this beautiful waterfall section. And they don't realize that they're wearing, you know, the wrong footwear, it's soaking wet and they fall and then they call 911 and then stomp is on the way. <laughs> Once you get past Cloudland, the trail continues on at about, uh, it gets a little steeper at about two point miles. That's where you run into the spur that leads to Shining Rock. And from the highway, you can see Shining Rock from certain vantages on 93. It, it just looks like this shining, bright diamond. And when there's a melt or if there's a rain, it will be as bright as day. And it's basically this giant 200-foot-tall, 800-foot-long slab of granite that just cleared out there. Absolutely beautiful spur. I think it's only, what, 0.2 to get to the spur from the trail. So it's really worth going down to see this beautiful spot. Yeah, especially in the winter because it just gets covered with ice and it's uh, it's got a little bit of an angle to it. So it's not like a traditional what you'd call an ice ice climbing route, but it is it's really accessible. And it's just you know, like Stomp said, it's like 200 feet of just granite slab. And when in the winter, it just gets covered in ice and it's it's pretty impressive. Yeah, and the view itself is beautiful too. So when you get to Shining Rock, you can oversee Cannon and the Kinsmans, and I believe you can see Musalak way out to the west as well. Yeah, and that's also your your kind of your signal to say that you've you've kind of made it because you're you get to Shining Rock, and then it's basically a very short distance to get above tree line. It's a little haystack, right? Yeah, more or less. It, it continues northerly on more or less a, a horizontal. It feels like you're walking on flat ground for a while. And then all of a yeah. sudden, boom, it just veers off to the east, straight up to the summit of Haystack. And once you're on that summit, you're on the ridge trail. So can you, you describe a little bit what uh, what the ridge trail looks like? The ridge is nice. It's almost like you're on a uh, <laughs> two-lane highway. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's... Uh, it, it every everything is basically <laughs> laid out there's there's rocks on either side so it's it's a pretty clear path on days where you have visibility yeah that's that's the catch for sure on a clear day it's very very easy to follow the trail when you first get up to haystack and you look north you can see mount lincoln which looks as though it's fairly close but it's it's deceiving and then as you get closer to lincoln you can finally see your final destination which is mount lafayette and the whole way like mike said is is really clear um, boulders line the side and it's just such a worn trail that it's very easy to follow in, in warmer non-snow conditions uh, after a snow it can be it can be challenging but not impossible because again it's such a busy trail so a lot of people tamp it down and then when you get to lafayette the, basically that's where you've got your decision point where you can either continue on to Garfield Ridge, or you can you can take that left turn down into Greenleaf, which is typical direction you would go in the, the loop. So talk a little bit about that section of Greenleaf Trail. From Lafayette Summit, the Greenleaf Trail continues down to the hut, and that is approximately 1.1 miles. It's fairly clear to follow. There's a beautiful series of cairns, couple switchbacks. As you get closer to the hut, the exposure becomes less and it becomes more vegetation and you, you find yourself walking between two lines of really tight scrub. And then you come out, I think there's a little pond right before the, uh, the you get to the that little water source and then the, the, you're at the hut and basically that's where you can take a break, get some food, and then you're on to the old bridal trail which continues down back into the parking lot and reconnects with with falling waters so right um 
Yeah, so Old Bridle is a, uh, it's a nice trail. Uh, there's, you know, it descends pretty quickly from the hut, and there is one section that gets really steep. I remember coming down that in my uh, my snowshoes when I did it in winter by myself, and I had to do a little bit of skiing to get down that section. But otherwise, it's a it's a pretty steady descent, and then uh, it's nice open forest to get down into the the lower sections, and it just reconnects back to falling water. So it's it's a it's a nice loop. Basically, you've completed your nine mile hike, and uh, you're back out to the car. And you know, most people do recommend that you do falling waters up, old bridle down. I personally, um, you know, as much as we have issues on falling waters with people slipping and falling, um, you know, for me, I, I, I would recommend either direction. It's really not a big deal. Um, I actually have a slight preference for going up old bridle and down falling waters, mostly because when I'm coming across the ridge, I do like to see that view of Mount Liberty and Mount Flume that I'm hiking towards as, as opposed to away. Uh, but either way is fine, but most people will recommend up falling waters and down um, down old bridle. So Stomp, I think we've kind of covered the main route of uh, Franconia Ridge, but there are two other trails directionally that people will hit the ridge from, uh, one of which is Greenleaf, the other is Skookum Chuck. Um, so why, why don't you talk a little bit about the, the Greenleaf Trail, and then we can look at Skookum Chuck afterwards. Greenleaf Trail is a 2.7 mile trail. If you're starting the trail from the highway, you're going to be probably parking at the Cannon Tram, the Cannon Mountain ski area. If you're ascending the trail, it's it's a pretty rugged trail overall. It's I would say it's moderate to advanced in terms of skill level. It's very bouldery. It's very steep for good portions of the trail. The first mile, you're walking more or less on a 10% grade. After that first mile, it just shoots straight up, and it's a very tight trail. It leads up to what they call Eagle Pass. To the north of Eagle Pass, you have Eagle Cliff and a few other notable sites that we'll talk about in the future. Eagle Pass is roughly at about 3,000 feet. And again, when you're heading up, you're heading to 4,000 feet, which is where the hut is. So from Eagle Pass, you have this beautiful glacial boulder formation in there where even in mid-August you can experience cooler temperatures because of the buried snow um, underneath the the boulder field here. It's very tight and narrow. Um, People on the team tell me that it's one of the most dangerous places for rock fall. So when you get to this pass as you're ascending, you'll notice that this this massive 80-foot tall cliff to your left, you want to get past that fairly quickly because it's very dangerous. It's constantly peeling off rock. So once you're past Eagle Pass, it just ascends gradually, but again, steeply and a lot of fairly big boulder steps and little scrambles here and there. Uh, Rugged trail, rugged trail for sure. I I haven't been on Green. I mean, I've I've been on Greenleaf to get up to the Watcher and Eagle Cliff, but um, I haven't spent a lot of time over there. So I definitely want to check it out in the future. Well, here's something funny. Just just a side note. Um, because of the diversions of all the traffic that we've had going to the regular trailheads, people are parking at the Cannon Tram and heading up Greenleaf. Some people are coming up falling waters over the traverse and then down Greenleaf by accident and then they they don't know how to get back to their car but um, last summer we had a qualifying hike and I could not believe how many people were coming down this trail hundreds 
again, same phenomena, just lots of people, but a little bit over their heads because it's a challenging trail for sure. Now, did you yeah, want again, to- it's, it's just so accessible in that area. It's like right off 93, park your car and you're in the woods. Yeah, for sure. Very few views on this trail. At the top, as you're nearing the hut, there is one or two side trails toward Cannon Cliffs, which is quite the view. That's a 900 yeah, foot yeah, cliff. That's, that's a nice area there. So um, so we've covered, again, the loop trails, talked about Greenleaf. Uh, the last approach is from the what we call the Skookum uh, Chuck Trail, which is a little farther north and a, a little bit longer of a hike. You know, it's not really something you can loop. It's more of an out and back approach to get to the ridge. But do you want to talk a little bit about Skookum Chuck? I, I've never been on it, but I think you've, you've been on it a few times. Sure, yeah. Skookum Chuck is the hidden gem. Not so much now anymore, but um, it's still... Not anymore after this podcast. <laughs> yeah, it's still less frequently traveled for sure. It's a long... Uh, let me get the mileage on this trail here. I believe it's almost four miles. Yeah, it's over four. So it's 4.3 miles from the trailhead. And it brings you basically 0.8 north of the Mount Lafayette summit. So to get to this trailhead, you're on Route 3, which just as you pass Franconia Notch, you'll see the trailhead on the right. It's a it's fairly long and gradual and will start to follow Lafayette Brook. There's a series of rock-hewn stairs that you have to climb. Eventually, it tops out into these beautiful birch fields. At one point, I forget how far it is, I think it's about maybe 3.6 miles in, you finally come up over a knoll after this really steep section, and you get your first view of Mount Lafayette. It's just a really stunning angle to see Lafayette. You don't typically see Lafayette from this view. After this vantage point, it meanders along somewhat horizontally for another half mile or so until the last summit push, which just juts straight up to a junction, which connects to the Garfield Ridge Trail, which is a continuation of the Pemi Loop heading towards Mount Garfield or south towards Mount Lafayette, which can be steep, open and exposed, very little vegetation. It's all stone. There can be some really slippery sections, so you definitely need the right gear. Very nice. Very nice. So I definitely have to get over there. And I would say, you know, we're going to wrap this segment up in a moment, but I would definitely encourage anyone, if you've never hiked Franconia Ridge, you got to get out there, um, do it safely. But I definitely recommend uh, getting out there and experiencing this is, again, one of the top 10 hikes in the world. Uh, this this makes many, many top hike lists, and it's very accessible, very close to anybody that's in New England, you know, a couple hour drive, and you can be in um, in a, a location that you just won't experience anywhere else. So it's, it's a, it's a great place to go. Got to do it safely. And we're going to talk a little bit about some of the mishaps that have happened around Franconia in the next segment. But before we transition and any thoughts around the, the actual hike itself that you want to finish up with stop? I would say put it at the top of your list, but make sure that you tackle it on a day that may be your personal vacation, but not school vacation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No yeah. school Do vacations. A, <laughs> yeah. Do it on a Tuesday morning. Um, get there early because that is another thing that you do, and we'll talk about this in a bit, but that's another thing we do see quite a bit is people roll up at like two o'clock in the afternoon and they think that they can do this loop and all of a sudden... You know, they're halfway through and it's eight o'clock at night and they don't have a headlamp or a light source and they're using their iPhone to, to get off the ridge. So it, it gets a little dicey. So start early. 
So, Snob, moving on to our next segment, um, we want to talk a little bit about um, some of the more well-known search and rescue events that have happened on and around Franconia. So, again, we talked about this earlier. Franconia is generally a safe area. It's a great place to hike. It's very accessible, um, which can make it a place where people run into problems. I wanted to talk a little bit about three or four cases of search and rescue events that have happened around Franconia, mostly just to highlight that things can go south quickly. And um, particularly when the weather comes in, this typically tends to be the place where weather hits the whites first. You know, and it comes in quickly and you can lose visibility and you can ca- it can cause a lot of issues, particularly in the winter. It's a hot spot for search and rescue. There's a, there's a few sort of well-known search and rescue events that have happened here and unfortunately fatalities. So the first one that comes to mind is Brenda and Russell Cox. This happened in 2004. And this was a, a husband and wife that were hiking. My understanding is that they were doing a an out and back on Mount Lafayette, came up old bridle. They were on Lafayette and got into a situation where they lost visibility, significant snowstorm. I believe that the windshield hit like minus 65 when they were up there. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, they made a mistake that happens quite a bit coming off of Lafayette. And instead of them turning down Greenleaf, they went on to the Garfield Ridge Trail. I believe that they were at the Skookumchuck Trail Junction and maybe about a, a tenth of a mile on the leeward side. So they basically got pushed down into the Pemi Wilderness, yeah. which happens for uh, for people that are getting hit by the wind up there pretty hard. Mm-hmm. It's really easy to miss that uh, junction down Skook as well. Yeah, yeah, it happens quite a bit. Matter of fact, it almost happened to me my first time. I just, you know, I get turned around and there's no visibility and it feels like you're going down the right trail because they've got these sort of trail markers laid out. But ultimately, you start heading down to the Garfield Ridge section and you're, you're, you can become like way off trail. And that's exactly what happened to them. Unfortunately, they were out for, I think, two or three nights. There wasn't enough visibility to get a helicopter out to them. Russell was able to survive. They found a, a rock outcropping to stay under. I don't believe that they had sleeping bags or anything they could use for warmth. So unfortunately, Brenda did not survive. Russell was taken off by a helicopter and... Uh, you know, it's a real tragedy. It's it's a difficult thing, and I don't think that they made any you know any purposeful mistakes. It's just one of those things where the weather came in, and unfortunately, they just took the wrong turn, and and it didn't end well for Brenda. What time of the year was this? This was in winter in two thousand four. Okay. So, uh, and around that period, there was a number of incidents that happened. I think that was a really rough winter. I think they were out one or two nights, and again, it was like minus sixty five windshield. So, it was just not a, a not a, a period or a condition that you could survive very easily on. So, no yeah, room so for error. And Russell Cox was was one of them. The the other well known search and rescue event that is recently gotten a lot of attention is tied to uh, a book that Ty Gagne uh, had recently published, which is uh, called The Last Traverse. And it's a story of Fred Fredrickson and James Osborne, who were co-workers, and they went out for a hike. I think Fredrickson was an experienced winter hiker. Osborne was doing his first winter hike, had a lot of experience in three-season hiking, and 
they went up the traditional route, falling waters, and came across the ridge, ran into some severe weather, whiteout conditions in winter. Unfortunately, they made the decision to hunker down in a rock outcropping and wait it out. And unfortunately, the, the weather just became such that when they decided to start moving, they made it back towards Little Haystack, but the conditions were just too much. And, and Fred Fredrickson just wasn't able to survive. James Osborne was uh, taken off the mountain and uh, he did survive, but it's it's just a another case where winter conditions basically happened and you know significant wind and, and wind chill and they weren't prepared for those conditions. So I always, whenever I'm hiking, I'm always I bring a sleeping bag, a bivy, and a sleeping pad to stay off the ground. So it's just basic equipment that you need to bring with you. And I think that you know when these events happen, people do learn from them and it hopefully present, uh, prevents things in the future from happening. There's always that uh, trade-off where, where, between what you're packing and where you're headed and what conditions you're expecting. And we'll talk about a, a rescue at the end here that just happened recently. But it's so important yeah. to, to be prepared for the conditions. Yeah, next next event that I had um, bookmarked here as a reminder was uh, this this one happened recently in 2017. A gentleman by the name of Randy Willett got got lost along the ridge and um, was down into the Pemi. And Stomp, you weren't on search and rescue at the time, but if I recall correctly, you were you were out hiking right around this time. So you, this may have actually been sort of like your first interaction with the with the search and rescue world, even though you weren't part of the team, you were just out there, right? Yeah, this is one of the big influences that inspired me to look further into search and rescue, for sure. I was doing a, what they call a PEMI loop, which is a 33-mile loop, coming up north, heading over the Garfield Ridge Trail toward Lafayette with a friend that I just met earlier that morning. The entire day, we were passing hikers saying, hey, did you see this guy? Did you did you happen to see this fella? You know, everybody was aware that this person was missing and had been in the woods, the Pemi Wilderness, for a couple days, and time was running out. I continued on with my friend until we got to Mount Garfield, and at that point, my friend was getting so tired of it that he decided to just crash at the Garfield campsite, and I continued on as uh, the sun was setting. And the entire day, you know, you could see civilian air patrol flying the loop, looking for any sign of life and providing radio relay for all the, the rescuers that were on the different aspects of the ridge. When I finally arrived to Mount Lafayette, I could hear the Black Hawk that plucked this fella off of the mountain at the very last minute. Apparently, from what I understand, there was a visual contact that was made when the National Guard came through for one last pass, and they saw something. It might have been a glint of a, you know, light or some reflective item that caught their attention. They actually found this guy on the eastern side of Mount Lincoln. So he was lucky to be spotted then. Yeah, it was coming on three days, I believe, of searching for this person. Wow. Very, very lucky. They were looking for this fellow. They were putting rescuers all over the loop. They were dropping them off by Black Hawk on Mount Garfield and different areas. And these rescuers were just diving into the Pemi looking for him. Yeah, I can't imagine it. I mean, I've, I've bushwhacked down there, down the Lincoln Slide, and, and kind of missed the slide and been in that thick vegetation. And I couldn't imagine kind of crawling through there to, to try to find somebody. Oh, yeah, you're talking shoulder-deep snow. So, yeah. Um, incredible yeah, story. Yeah, that's great to hear that he still still sort of shows his appreciation to the, the volunteers that helped him out. So, mm -hmm. so I think just uh, the last, I guess, incident or 
uh, noteworthy search and rescue that I'll, I'll call out. It's not really a search and rescue, but um, it's just when you talk about Franconia Ridge, one of the people that is probably most influential in setting up the Ridge Trail and then uh, just overall in the, the whites and, and leave no trace and you know, that, that we want to talk about is a guy named Guy Waterman. So if you're not familiar with Guy Waterman, he's a well-known naturalist, lived in Vermont, I believe, for many years, kind of an off the grid with him and his wife. And he's known as the father of Leave No Trace. He's got a number of books that have basically been influential in creating the, uh, the Leave No Trace um, ethic that we all go by when we're hiking. So he um, spent many years uh, building the the rock path on top of the ridge trail. And I think he likely built a lot of the cairn markers that exist coming down the trail. So uh, we all owe a lot of appreciation to Guy as far as when, you know, when we're hiking that area, he, he built that up stone by stone. One of the sort of interesting things about Guy is the way that he chose to end his life. He had a terminal illness and decided that he didn't want to go through the through the, the challenge of being in the hospital. And he decided basically in the winter that he would hike up to Mont Lafayette. And he left a note with some friends to let them know where he could be found and went up there on a day that was quite cold and um, just decided to sort of hang out there on Mount Lafayette and let, let nature take its course. And he ended up passing away on the mountain and his friends went up there, carried him off. And, you know, he was as far as the father of Leave No Trace, he, he, he did leave quite a trace at the end, but uh, his friends went out and got him. So it's kind of an interesting footnote. It's, it's something that's interesting. So if you haven't heard of Guy Waterman, definitely worth researching a little bit to learn more about him. He's an interesting character. Yeah, so, I, I'm not aware of him, actually. There, yeah. there are so many great characters up here in New Hampshire. I mean, there's so many books and just awesome characters and the history. It's just amazing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, that's one of the things I love about hiking is the people that you meet uh, and the unique personalities that, that travel along these trails are endless. It's very, very interesting. But I think we can we can kind of wrap this segment up at, you know, Franconia, it's a beautiful place to hike. It's a dangerous place to hike in some time, in some cases. So you, you got to keep keep safety in mind. But I do want to transition over to our third segment, which is a, a recent search and rescue that happened on Franconia that um, you actually stopped. You were involved in. You were like the first guy up there. So yeah. um, you want to talk a little bit about the uh, the most recent search and rescue? The, the Basically, just, just to tee it up, there, there's two trail runners that went up, did the loop the way we just described, up falling waters along the ridge. Uh, but do you want to talk a little bit about what, what they were facing on that day? Yeah, you bet. Uh, this was January 23rd at about 12.45, Fishing Game got a call for two trail runners that set out up Falling Waters. They wanted to do the entire nine-mile loop in four hours. The forecast for this weekend was 50-mile-an-hour winds, minus 25 degrees, blowing snow, low visibility. Yeah, and- so trail running in these conditions is insanity. Like, the the idea of going up there and trail running sneakers is just crazy. Well, yeah, trail running sneakers and minimal, minimal gear to survive. I mean, as a search and rescue person, we're going up with 50 to 70 pounds of equipment just to to prepare and survive for 24 hours if we had to. And most hikers in the winter are going up in that condition with at least 30 to 50 pounds of stuff to be ready. Cause you're, yeah, you're, I mean, I've got my, my pack tomorrow that I'm going up on Garfield is probably like 25 pounds. Um, and that's, a hike that I'm going to be in in the trees most of the time. Yeah. 
So these these guys apparently started out pretty early, nine-ish or so, if I recall the, the detail. They made it up to the ridge, and as they were running across the ridge, they, they came across deep snow and blowing wind, and one of the guys lost his sneakers. Yeah, yeah. So I think my guess is that they still have the sneakers when they got to Lafayette because one of the things that came out of this case is that they did so they were probably the only people that went across the ridge that day would be my guess based on the conditions the wind and the the uh, the conditions there just were not conducive to being on the ridge so the fact that these guys made it across the ridge in the conditions they did is insane like they must be super strong trail runners um and then i know that when they were coming down lafayette they ran into a group of four hikers and the hikers basically talked to them briefly and they signaled that they were they were doing okay and there was no cause for those other hikers to be concerned about them other than sort of it was noteworthy to them that these two crazy guys were up there in running gear but otherwise they they did ask them are they okay and they they signaled that yep i'm okay and then that group headed up to lafayette trail runners came down greenleaf so my guess is that if they lost sneakers on the ridge they would have told that other group yeah, the report's funny. I mean, we don't get the, the nitty-gritty details, but from the fishing game report, it says that they, they reached the summit of Lafayette, lost the trail, and as they were floundering through deep snow, they lost their sneakers. So it could have been lower into the drainage itself. Um, yeah, sounds like it. Yeah. Point being, one of them had no shoes. They were somewhere down Lafayette drainage, Lafayette Brook, it's just north of where Greenleaf Hut would be. There's a massive drainage that comes down. They made their way through waist-deep snow. One of them was barefoot. Their their phone wasn't working. And as they made it down to about 3,200 feet, they just stopped and ran out of gas. And they were freezing and became hypothermic. They had their feet in a backpack to stay warm. They really had no extra gear to protect themselves. Certainly didn't have enough gear to wait for search and rescue to show up, which can be a timely process, which I can talk about in a moment, or even National Guard, which in this case were the rescuers of the day. Got Back- it. So, so these guys eventually were able to get a phone call out, right? Because if they if they hadn't got that phone call out, they, they wouldn't have survived. In my opinion, no. It would have been a recovery of two people two bodies for sure. So basically when they were sitting, they th- were able to thaw out a phone. The call came in around 12:45. Search and rescue was activated around 1:30. I arrived first. So I- so you get a, you get either a phone call or a text from like the the fishing games people. So so just to give people an understanding of how this works, like that you, you can watch Northwoods Law and you can learn a lot about about this as well. But basically, you've got the the fishing game organization, which is law enforcement, and then they rely on a volunteer organization called the the PEMI Search and Rescue, which is what um, Stomp is part of. Yeah, one of the many. And, yeah, and they basically have sort of a like a, a messaging system that goes out that alerts the the volunteer members to 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 arrive at a, a location to help with a rescue. Yeah. Right. And that's what happened that day. I was on my way to Plymouth when that call came in. So I instead of going south, I went north. And I, we all have our gear in our cars. Uh, so we're ready to go, especially in the winter when these, these calls are so, so time intensive. You have to get there as quick as possible and get to these people. So when I arrived at the trailhead, there was another 
commanding officer from fishing game and i got ready pretty quick and um started up the trail by myself i'm usually we'll send people up in pairs but i'm fairly familiar with this area so i just started to break trail for the people that would be coming up behind me i made so it you up. just you basically just started going and you your assumption is you got two or three people coming up behind you yeah i mean there were se- several volunteers from our team and then uh three or four fishing game officers that were coming up as well I made it to Eagle Pass, which we talked about earlier in the podcast, and then I continued on to about 3,200 feet, which is just beyond Eagle Pass, maybe quarter mile. And at that point, that's when the, the Black Hawk arrived. There had been a call placed for a Black Hawk earlier in the day, and there was some question as to whether or not they would be able to actually come in if the weather's bad, if the ceiling... We, you know, the ceiling is what we call just the, the, the cloud cover. It can rise, it can fall. In this case, based upon where I was at the pass, it's at 3,200 feet, there was maybe another two to 400 feet of visibility above me. And beyond that, it was just pure gusty snow blowing. So the Blackhawk would never have been able to get any higher than that. And if that ceiling had fallen, which it did just after they got those guys out, then they would have been called off and you know, it would have been a full rescue with the rescuers. So you guys would have had to get in there and, and actually carry them out on a litter. Yeah, for sure. We were about 0.2 from where they were, or about 900 feet horizontally from their location. So we would have just gone off trail, bushwhacked through deep, waist-deep snow over to their location. And then the question at that point is, where do we go? Do we go back to the Greenleaf Trail and descend, or do we bushwhack straight down Lafayette Brook. So those are the questions that we face at the time. You know, it took about 30 minutes for the Black Hawk to package those two individuals and get them into the helicopter and whisk them away. And while that was happening, three or four other members arrived to where I was, and we just were in a holding pattern waiting to, to find out what was going to happen. And thankfully, yeah, they... So they, they got both of them in the helicopter and got them off to Dartmouth for uh, immediate treatment then, it sounds like. Yeah. Yeah, thankfully. So, yeah, that is a crazy story. I mean, just the fact that they even made it across the ridge, the fact that they, you know, were in that, uh, you know, that that type of gear in those conditions is crazy. And then just dumb luck. I mean, the phone working is one one bit that, you know, if they hadn't had that happen, they could have been in deep trouble. Mm-hmm. And then the fact that the, the cloud coverage for the helicopter was such that they could get picked off the mountain is another uh, another sort of stroke of luck for them, I would think. You know, just as you're hiking anywhere, uh, particularly above treeline in places like the Lafayette Loop, Lafayette Ridge, you have to know what the weather's going to do. And even when you know it, it can change. And it's always good to have a plan B and to be prepared. The hikesafe.com, that's a site that's promoted by Fishing Game all the time. And at that site, you can find out what you need to pack. Um, there are 10 essentials and um, I would advise everybody to look into that and get a good look at it. And on this podcast, we'll talk about it in depth too. Yeah, yeah. We really want to do what we can to keep people safe and, and highlight some of the uh, the things that you can do to stay safe out there. So uh, sometimes things happen. Uh, this particular case with these two trail runners, um, I'm sh- you know, there was some chatter on uh, social media, and I think I, I definitely read one or two entries from relatives of these these runners, and you know, they they did indicate that uh, at least one of them was pretty scarred from the whole situation. 
upset about the choices that they made as far as, you know, the being out there in those conditions. And I'm sure that, you know, they're going to have a long time to reflect on on the decisions made on that day. And no, nobody's perfect. You know, by all accounts, both of these folks are strong uh, runners made it across the ridge in, in, in crazy conditions. It's just, a, you know, they took a wrong turn and they, they paid for it. But luckily, Stomp, you were there to help them. <laughs> yes, we were. Yeah, that's what we train for. And, you know, we're glad to help. And again, yeah. it's just, it's, it's a huge relief for everybody knowing that they got out alive because that story could have been a completely different outcome, a horrendous outcome. And it happens. All right, Jamie. So before we wrap up this episode, uh, I did promise the audience that we were going to talk about beer safety when it came to uh, going into outhouses. So I'm sure you're curious about what that might <laughs> might entail, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So there's an article that came out this week that uh, I thought was pretty funny, but, but this happened in Anchorage, Alaska. So an Alaska woman had the scare of a lifetime when using an outhouse in the backcountry. Uh, and she was attacked by a bear from below. So obviously, like you know, most of the the facilities in the White Mountains, like they're they're compost toilets. So I always think about that. Like it's basically like an endless pit where you know, like Pennywise the clown is basically sitting down there. So this lady goes to the bathroom, and it's hibernation season in Alaska, <laughs> and she, uh, you know, she basically got a, a a bite right to the ass and obviously did what anybody would do and just screamed and ran the hell out of there. And then I think her brother-in-law looks like her, her brother, actually her brother and his girlfriend went in and, you know, sure enough, see a black bear climbing out of the, <laughs> the outhouse toilet. So that's amazing. Um, so yeah, yeah, the bear was scary. hibernating. So apparently. Yeah. They, they had thought that the, the bear was taking up residence in the, in the outhouse, oh, in the bottom of the outhouse. And you know, sure enough, they were doing a, it sounds like they were doing a snowmobile trip out to this cabin in the backcountry uh, to, uh, actually it was a yurt, you know, nature called, they got there at night and you know, it was dark. So she goes in and all of a sudden she starts feeling something, something bit her in the behind and sure enough, it was a beer. This is like the stuff of nightmares for me. Always look down the hole first. Yeah, exactly. So hopefully that won't happen here in New England, but we'll, we'll see. But uh, yeah, so that's the beer story. So thanks for listening. Uh, if you enjoyed the show, please follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to learn more about Franconia Ridge, we will add show notes to the Sounds Like a Search and Rescue Call podcast show pages, which can be found on Facebook and Instagram. We look forward to you joining us next week as we start our Introduction to New Hampshire hiking series. Until next time, I'm Mike. And I'm Stomp. Get out there and crush some peaks. Covered in scratches, blisters, and bug bites, Chris Staff wanted to complete his most challenging day hike ever. Fish and game officers say the hiker from Florida activated an emergency beacon yesterday morning. He was hiking along the Appalachian Trail when the weather started to get worse. Officials say the snow was piled up to three feet in some spots and there was a wind chill of minus one degree. And there's three words to describe this race. Do we all know what they are? Lieutenant James Neeland, New Hampshire Fish and Game. Lieutenant, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. What are some of the most common mistakes you see people make when they're heading out on the trails to hike here in New Hampshire? It seems to me the most common is being unprepared, and I think if they just simply visited uh, hikesafe.com and got a list of the 10 essential items and had those in their packs, they probably would have no need to ever call us at all.